Section 18 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 9 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 2, by Ida L. Pfeiffer. My gentlemen protectors wished to journey from Jerusalem to Beirut by land, and intended taking a circuitous route, by way of Nazareth, Galilee, Canaan, etc., in order to visit as many of these places as possible, which are fraught with such interest to us Christians. They were once more kind enough to admit me into their party, and the 11th of June was fixed for our departure. June 11th. Quitting Jerusalem at three o'clock in the afternoon, we emerged from the Damascus Gate, and entered a large elevated plateau. Though this region is essentially a stony one, I saw several stubble fields, and even a few scanty blades of grass. The view is very extended. At a distance of four miles the walls of Jerusalem were still in view, till at length the road curved round a hill, and the holy city was forever hidden from our sight. On the left of the road an old church, said to have been erected in the days of Samuel, stands upon a hill. At six in the evening we reached the little village of Beer, and fixed our halting-place for the night in a neighboring stubble-field. During my first journey by land, I mean my ride from Joppa to Jerusalem, I had already had a slight foretaste of what is to be endured by the traveller in these regions. Whoever is not very hardy and courageous, and insensible to hunger, thirst, heat and cold, whoever cannot sleep on the hard ground, or even on stones, passing the cold nights under the open sky, should not pursue his journey farther than from Joppa to Jerusalem, for as we proceed the fatigues become greater and less endurable, and the roads are more forbidable to endure. Besides this, the food is so bad that we only eat from fear of starvation, and the only water we can get to drink is lukewarm and offensive from the leathern jars in which it is kept. We usually rode for six or seven hours at a time without alighting even for a moment, though the thermometer frequently stood at from thirty degrees to thirty-four degrees reamer. Afterwards we rested for an hour at the most, and this halt was often made in the open plain, where not a tree was in sight. Refreshment was out of the question, either for the riders or the poor beasts, and frequently we had not even water to quench our burning thirst. The horses were compelled to labor unceasingly from sunrise until evening, without even receiving a feed during the day's journey. The Arabian horse is the only one capable of enduring so much hardship. In the evening these poor creatures are relieved of their burdens, but very seldom of the saddle, for Arabs assert that it is less dangerous for the horse to bear the saddle day and night than that it should be exposed when heated by the day's toil to the cold night air. Bridles, saddles, and stirrups were all in such bad condition that we were in continual danger of falling to the ground, saddle and all. In fact, this misfortune happened to many of our party, but luckily it was never attended with serious results. June 12th. The night was very chilly, although we slept in a tent, our thick cloaks scarcely sufficed to shield us from the night air. In the morning the fog was so dense that we could not see thirty paces before us. Towards eight o'clock it rolled away, and a few hours later the heat of the sun began to distress us greatly. It is scarcely possible to guard too carefully against the effects of the heat. 
the head should in particular be kept always covered, as carelessness in this respect may bring on coupe de soleil. I always wore two pocket-handkerchiefs round my head, under my straw hat, and continually used a parasol. From Beer to Jabrud, where we rested for a few hours, we travelled for six hours through a monotonous and sterile country. We had still a good four hours' ride before us to Nablus, our resting-place for the night. The roads here are bad beyond conception, so that at first the stranger despairs of passing them either on foot or on horseback. Frequently the way leads up a hill and down dale, over great masses of rock, and I was truly surprised at the strength and agility of our poor horses, which displayed extraordinary sagacity in picking out the little ledges on which they could place their feet safely in climbing from rock to rock. Sometimes we crossed smooth slabs of stone, where the horses were in imminent danger of slipping, at others the road led us past frightful chasms, the sight of which was sufficient to make me dizzy. I had read many accounts of these roads, and was prepared to find them bad enough, but my expectations were far surpassed by the reality. All that a traveller can do is to trust in Providence, and abandon himself to fate and to the sagacity of his horse. An hour and a half before we reached the goal of this day's journey, we passed the grave of the patriarch Jacob. Had our attention not been particularly drawn to this monument, we should have ridden by without noticing it, for a few scattered blocks of stone are all that remain. A little farther on we enter the Samaritan territory, and here is Jacob's well, where our Saviour held converse with the woman of Samaria. The masonry of the well has altogether vanished, but the spring still gushes forth from a rock. Nablus, the ancient Sichem, the chief town of Samaria, contains four thousand inhabitants, and is reputed to be one of the most ancient towns in Palestine. It is surrounded by a strong wall, and consists of a long and very dirty street. We rode through the town from one end to the other, and passed the poor-looking bazaar, where nothing struck me but the sight of some fresh figs, which were, at this early season, already exposed for sale. Of course we bought the fruit at once, but it had a very bad flavor. A number of soldiers are seen in all the towns. They are Arnots, a wild, savage race of men, who appear to be regarded with more dread by the inhabitants than the wandering tribes whose incursions they are intended to repress. We pitched our tents on a little hill immediately outside the town. Few things are more disagreeable to the traveller than being compelled to bivouac near a town or village in the east. All the inhabitants, both young and old, flock round in order to examine the European caravan, which is a most unusual sight for them, as closely as possible. They frequently even crowd into the tents, and it becomes necessary to expel the intruders almost by main force. Not only are strangers excessively annoyed at being thus made a gazing stock, but they also run a risk of being plundered. Our cook had the good fortune to obtain a kid only three or four days old, which was immediately killed and at once boiled with rice. We made a most sumptuous meal, for it was seldom we could get such good fare. June 13th. The morning sun found us already on horseback. We rode through the whole of the beautiful valley at the entrance of which Nablus lies. The situation of this town is very charming. The valley is not broad, and does not exceed a mile and a half in length. 
It is completely surrounded with low hills. The mountain on the right is called Ebel, and that on the left Grissom. The latter is celebrated as being the meeting place of the twelve tribes of Israel under Joshua. They there consulted upon the means of conquering the land of Canaan. The whole valley is sufficiently fertile. Even the hills are in some instances covered to their summits with olive, fig, lemon, and orange trees. Some little brooks, clear as crystal, bubble through the beautiful plain. We were frequently compelled to ride through the water, but all the streams are at this season of the year so shallow that our horses' hooves were scarcely covered. After gaining the summit of the neighboring hill, we turned round with regret to a look our last on this valley. Seldom has it been my lot to behold a more charming picture of blooming vegetation. Two more hours brought us to Sebasta, the ancient Samaria, which also lies on a lovely hill, though for beauty of situation it is not to be compared with Nablus. Sebasta is a wretched village. The ruins of the convent, built on the place where St. John the Baptist was beheaded, were here pointed out to us, but even of the ruins there are few traces left. Two hours later we reached Jenin, and had now entered the confines of Galilee. Though this province, perhaps, no longer smiles with the rich produce it displayed in the days of old, it still affords a strong contrast to Judea. Here we again find hedges of the Indian fig-tree, besides palms and large expanses of field, but for flowers and meadows we still search in vain. The costume of the Samaritan and Galilean women appears as monotonous as it is poor and dirty. They wear only a long dark blue gown, and the only difference to be observed in their dress is that some muffle their faces and others do not. It would be no less if all wore veils, for so few pretty women and girls are to be discovered, that they might be searched for, like the honest man of Diogenes, with a lantern. The women have all an ugly brown complexion, their hair is matted, and their busts lack the rounded fullness of the Turkish women. They have a custom of ornamenting both sides of the head, from the crown to the chin, with a row of silver coins, and those women who do not muffle their faces usually wear, as a headdress, a handkerchief of blue linen. Jenin is a dirty little town, which we only entered in consequence of having been told that we should behold the place where Queen Jezebel fell from the window and was devoured by dogs. Both window and palace have almost vanished, but dogs, who look even now as though they could relish such royal prey, are seen prowling about the streets. Not only in Constantinople, but in every city of Syria we found these wild dogs. They were, however, nowhere as numerous as in the imperial city. We halted for an hour or two outside the town, beside a coffee-house, and threw ourselves on the ground beneath the open sky. A kind of hearth made of masonry, on which hot water was continually in readiness, stood close by, and near it some mounds of earth had been thrown up to serve as divans. A ragged boy was busy pounding coffee, while his father, the proprietor of the concern, concocted the cheering beverage, and handed it round to the guests. Straw mats were spread for our accommodation on the earthen divans, and without being questioned we were immediately served with coffee and argile. In the background stood a large and lofty stable of brickwork, which might have belonged to a great European inn. After recruiting ourselves here a little, we once more set forth to finish our day's journey. 
Immediately after leaving the town, a remarkably fine view opens before us over the great elevated plain as Drelon, to the magnificent range of mountains enclosing this immense plateau. In the far distance they showed us Mount Carmel, and, somewhat nearer, Mount Tabor. Here, too, the mountains are mostly barren, without, however, being entirely composed of naked masses of rock. Mount Tabor, standing entirely alone and richly clothed with vegetation, has a very fine appearance. For nearly two hours we rode across the plain of Esdralan, and had thus ample pleasure to meditate upon the great events that have occurred here. It is difficult to imagine a grander battlefield, and we can readily believe that in such a plain whole nations may have struggled for victory. From the time of Nebuchadnezzar to the period of the Crusades, and from the days of the Crusades to those of Napoleon, armies of men from all nations have assembled here to fight for their real or imaginary rights, or for the glory of conquest. The great and continuous heat had cracked and burst the ground on this plain to such a degree that we were in continual apprehension lest our horses should catch their feet in one or other of the fissures and strain or even break them. The soil of the plain seems very good, and is free from stones. It appears, however, generally to lie fallow, being thickly covered with weeds and wild artichokes. The villagers are seen in the far distance near the mountains. This plain forms part of Canaan. We pitched our camp for the night beside a little cistern near the wretched village of Lagan, and thus slept for the third night consecutively on the hard earth. June 14th. Today we rode for an hour across the plain of Esdralan, and once more suffered dreadfully from the stings of the minute gnats which had annoyed us so much on our journey from Joppa to Ramla. These plagues did not leave us until we had partly ascended the mountains skirting the plain, from the summit of which we could see Nazareth, prettily built on a hill at the entrance of a fruitful valley. In the background rises the beautiful Mount Tabor. From the time we first see Nazareth until we reach the town is a ride of an hour and a half. Thus the journey from Legan to Nazareth occupies four hours and a half, and the entire distance from Jerusalem twenty-six or twenty-seven hours. End of section 18